Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. I have been gone for about a month. And so if you don't follow me on Instagram, you probably don't know why that is. Um, I had a huge lineup of guests and then my husband got very sick. Then I got very sick. And so follow me at a devotional heart on Instagram so that you can always find out what's going on with me and why I haven't been uploading videos, but I'm back and I have a really fun, smart, cool, orthodox guest today. His name is Pano and I found him on probably the first time I saw him was on a Jay Dyer live stream in the chat and I've seen him on Church of the Eternal Logos and a couple other live streams and he always asks really interesting, thought-provoking questions or makes comments or adds something to the conversation that makes people think. And that's what I really liked about him. So I reached out to him and I asked him to be a guest on my show. And here he is. We've been planning this for about a month now. So Pano, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And so let's just start with, I just want to ask you a few questions about orthodoxy in general. And um, I know you're Greek Orthodox and you have a YouTube channel and I want to talk about too, because I'll put the link to that in the description for everybody. And, um, but first I want to let everybody know the main topic today is going to be about the divine liturgy, which is probably my favorite thing about the Orthodox church. And for those of you who are new to my channel. I am not an Orthodox Christian yet. I'm not baptized. I'm a catechumen. So I'm in the early stages of learning so many aspects of Orthodoxy. And the Divine Liturgy is a very beautiful, deep experience that, um, Pano, I'll tell you a little bit about my first experience with the the liturgy after you introduce yourself. But um, I just want everybody to know I'm not a teacher or representative of the Orthodox Church. That's why I have these interviews so I can ask questions to my guests and hopefully shed some light on some topics around Orthodoxy that um, might inspire people to attend a divine liturgy, for instance. So, Pano, you were raised Orthodox, is that correct? Uh, yes. And um, your family's Greek? Are your are your is your father from Greece? My mother is actually from Greece. My father was raised by uh, Greek immigrants, so he was pretty as Greek as they come, whilst uh, being from here. So. And you still have family there. I think I saw in an interview with you that you have been to Greece. Yeah, I was born there actually, oh, and wow. used to go back and forth all the time growing up, which was really fun. Uh, when was the last you. time you were there? Too long ago, it was seven years ago. Mm. I was eight years ago now, almost. Wow. <laughs> well, any, go back, really. anyone who follows me on Instagram knows that my number one destination, travel destination, is Greece. I. I only post photos on my um, stories of Greece and I'm dying to go there. I really want to learn Greek. I mean, I'll never be fluent, but I would love to 
learn a little bit of the language. It's so beautiful. And um, the food I love, I just, I'm like crazy for Greece. So maybe when I finally go, you can recommend the places that I need to visit when I'm there. Yeah, I always, I've had a bunch of people uh, recommend, by bunch I mean two, so I like to exaggerate, that's a Greek thing. Um, I had two people recommend uh, um, uh, places to visit there. And just for all you people watching, uh, Skopelos is, is the island to go to. I mean, everyone goes to Mykonos and Santorini and all that, uh-huh. but Skopelos, uh, not many people know about it. So the touristy uh, scene there is a lot smaller, so it feels it, it doesn't feel quite as busy. You can kind of relax and, and settle in. And uh, it also doubles as a nice Orthodox uh, site to go to, particularly because St. Cosmas uh, of, of Etolos would preach there. So it's a very holy place as well. Some of the best uh, pita that have their own <laughs> or pitas, if you want to call it that, which you shouldn't, but they're called the uh, Skopelopita. So they named it after the island. <laughs> so it's really... Yeah, you, you'll go there. You'll see a documentary about it all there. So, yeah, for all of you guys who want to visit Skopelos, do your research. And there's a bunch of YouTube videos on it. It's beautiful. It's where they filmed uh, Mamma Mia, that movie that everyone likes for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So um, let's see. You. I want to talk about the Divine Liturgy. Maybe I'll just share my experience of the first time I attended the liturgy and then you can kind of um, tell, I, I kind of want to keep this geared toward people who are new to orthodoxy mm-hmm. because one of the things I really want to do with this channel is to inspire people, not only to read orthodox books, listen to Jay Dyer and, you know, all the ortho bros, but mostly mainly have an experience with an, local Orthodox church and maybe go to more than one. And, and um, because they're so similar, but they're, they have differences too. I don't know, maybe you can share a little bit. Yeah, that's before going forward. I, I, and I suffer from this too, to some extent, well, I'm fortunate enough to have gone to liturgy growing up, but for those people who are inquiring into Orthodoxy, the usual, you can say plan of attack or approach that they have to Orthodoxy is, well, I'm going to, read everything I can possibly read. I know. read read up on it perfectly. I want to learn about the theology. I want to learn the history. I want to go through this academic and intellectualized approach first, and then I'll kind of work out the spiritual stuff later and go to liturgy uh, later. Now, that might not be true for everyone, so that might be a little bit of a straw man. I get it. It's not all of you, but that's a tendency that I see a lot of people have, and my re- recommendation is you, you want to flip that. <laughs> Because what came first was uh, the liturgy, right? There was multiple types of liturgical gatherings or embraces that you find all throughout the Old Testament. So even before our scripture and before Christ became incarnate, there were liturgies. There was a type of a liturgy in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve and God. They were all uh, in agreement with everything. Uh, The early church, it says it in the book of Acts, they read the appointed readings, the Psalms, and they they did the Eucharist. They, they did all these things from the earliest of times, and they had spiritual fathers. They learned how to pray. They, they managed, you can say, the, the temple inside of them, be it their own passions and everything of that sort. So the first plan of attack should be attend liturgy, learn how to pray, learn how to fast, seek instruction. So there's that, just uh, 
an FYI, if you find yourself gravitating towards the books, which I do, I love books so much. If I panned over to that side over there, it's uh, quite, uh, I mean, quite a mountain of books there. I've got to organize it better. But yeah, that. And also, the, I think it's liturgy comes first. Also. Important to ask questions to the subdeacon or the priest if you can. Have exactly. a conversation. Uh, when I first met with my priest, it was such a special meeting, getting to know him, him getting to know me. And um, I had been, I was already a catechumen actually before I had a private meeting with him. And um, I can only speak for my priest, but he was so warm and I felt like I could ask him anything. There's nothing too weird or or confrontational or, you know, they, they just really encourage us to question things. And, and so anyway, I just um, agree with you that the liturgy and then meeting the people who attend church too, and getting to know them and how just seeing their families. Um, Cause I, I come from a broken home. I'm an only child and I didn't grow up in Christianity. So I am now surrounding myself with these incredible families, these beautiful, just these children that are, I don't know. I just, I am, yeah. it's a whole new experience. They have no idea how blessed they are, don't they? It's that's <laughs> that beautiful uh, obliviousness that they have, you know, yeah. I see a lot of families like that too, the church that I attend and, it's, it's so great. I always make sure to, like every time I go to liturgy at, or after liturgy at coffee hour, I try to spend at least a minute or two just like high-fiving or spending a little bit of time with, with some of the kids, asking them what's on their mind. I just want you to be pure so that I can laugh and I can, you know, feel bad about myself and force me to repent harder and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so right. there's, there's so much that they, uh, they have to offer that, um, when you have people who grew up in orthodoxy. That's really cool. And for people who don't know, we include the children in our worship service. So like yeah. the Western Christians put the children in Sunday school during the service and we don't do that. So Pano, why, why is it that way? Or what do you, that, that ties it really, that ties it together nicely with what I said earlier about, you know, the, the book learning type stuff first, but, yeah, because, you know, in the liturgy, God is present. He reveals himself to you in the most uh, intimate way, right? It's, and there, there, there's a saying, I believe, uh, was it Elder Gabriel of Georgia? I think I got, I got his name right, but he um, he's a saint, actually. He said, if only you knew how much grace there was in the temple, you would lick the dirt off the floor of the yes, temple. I've heard I don't know. If, I think Father Peter Hears uh, mentioned that in one of his lectures, and that, that's what came to mind. So to deprive the children of the grace of God, or when we say these things like the energies of God, the grace of God, all that we really mean is his personal presence, his personal working inside of us, inside of all of reality. And you get the most, you can say, intimate or concentrated form of that in the temple itself, in uh, the, the services themselves, and especially in the liturgy, because it all, in the liturgy in particular, it all hinders around uh, the Eucharist, where Christ actually, uh, we, we, we partake of his own human nature, of his flesh and blood in the bread and the wine. Mm -hmm. So that's what heals us. That's what deifies us. It's what makes us, you can say, it, it makes us theanthropic. That's the fancy Greek word. It begins to heal our nature and to make us into what we were supposed to be. Mm -hmm. 
And it, it, it's also part of why with the children, we don't wait behind a certain point to uh, uh, baptize them or confirm them because for us, I mean, like strength of words and eloquence and intelligence and being able to articulate the faith intellectually doesn't really, it, it, it doesn't really mean much ultimately because all these things, uh, when we go out into, into the next life, uh, these things will be done away with and made new anyway. So when you're in the presence of your father, that's all that matters, to, to put it simply. That is so beautiful. So do you mind if I share about the first couple divine liturgies that I attended? What it was yeah, like? what was that like? I, that's always that's always a fun thing for me. When I was in uh, college, um, I was one of the few people who had a car, so I would make it a, a habit to offer rides to people, which also kept me accountable. So if I ever got lazy, I would be screwing over like three to four other people, <laughs> and I would have to repent from that. So that was fun. I, I did bring a few newbies to the liturgy, and that's always... That's always fun. Sometimes, though, it's a bit of a temptation. Like, I'm I'm more invested in their reaction than oh being present God. in the service. I know. So, actually, I have yeah. a very close friend coming to visit from France, and she's Christian, but she's yeah, never yeah. been to an Orthodox liturgy, and she's, we're both very excited. So I know I was thinking yeah, yeah. that, like, am I going to be the whole time? Am I going to be wondering what she's yeah. thinking or experiencing, or am I going to be able to just let her have her experience and have my own. I used to fantasize about that when I was uh, in high school or when I was starting to get into orthodoxy uh, seriously. I mean, I was always there. I took it for granted, but I didn't actually actively start to look into it until, uh, or studying the history and all that until I was in high school. And I used to fantasize, oh, what are these people going to think if I can somehow get them to convert or do this type of thing? How could I like impress them? Which is really, you know, stupid and juvenile. Like who cares what they think? Just do do your own thing. And if they're impressed by the grace of God that runs through you or that works through you, then you can answer it. Right. Mm-hmm. You plant the seeds indirectly. But right, right. yeah, but that, that was funny. Just kind of <laughs> had flashbacks to when I was in high school. <laughs> yeah. So the first time I went, I went by myself. I didn't know anybody. I don't think I've, I'd already been to catechism class, which is funny. I mean, that's kind of the reverse. I think of how, I probably was supposed to do it. I was probably supposed to go to liturgy first, but it was all around the same time. Um, It was in May, I think, or June of this year. And um, yeah, I didn't know anyone. Oh, but that's right. My catechism teacher was kind enough to meet me outside and brought me in and kind of quiet, very quietly because, you know, we didn't want to, cause any distractions or anything, but he brought me up to the front to the um, icons and it was hard to hear him, but he was helping me understand, you know, about the the icons at the front and then um, the candles. He explained to me about lighting candles, which I would really love for you to talk about a little bit. And, um, and then I had my, it's actually right here. My, my, um, little um, handbook. And so he would, he would, he stood next to me and he made sure that I knew where we were in the liturgy um, because there are, there are a couple things, not that they're out of order, but there's like extra things in here. Like we don't use every single thing every time. I don't think so. He was making sure I I knew where we were. Yeah. There's a bit of a movable 
some depending on the time of the year that you're in or the date or the type of service, things can be added out, things can be or added out, removed and added in and uh, moved around depending on uh, like, for example, sometimes we we have, uh, I believe it's the Annunciation to the Mother of God and the Feast of St. John the Baptist. There are occasional times where I, I could have gotten those wrong, so forgive me, but when feasts like that would actually end up on the same day and they can't have uh, feast day for two important figures like that on the same day, so they move them out and they might change parts of the liturgy. So mm-hmm. or if it's, it's really it's dynamic. I don't, I don't fully understand it either. It's kind of confusing. I just sort of follow the rubrics that I walk into the church and they give you the rubrics and I'm like, all right, this is what we're doing. Yeah. So, so um, overall, what I noticed, because mm-hmm. I think I might've mentioned this, I wasn't raised Christian. So I don't even really know what a, a Western or, you know, Protestant church service is like. I just know there's a lot more of a sermon given than there is in the Orthodox church. We are singing and we're crossing ourselves and um, standing. We stand at my... Yes, I hate sitting in church. I hate it. (laughs) Yeah, so that was... I hate it. Or what's worse than sitting is sitting and then standing, sitting and then standing. That's something... We do sit during the homily and that's um, fine. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. besides but, that, but that's yeah. the only time. Mm-hmm. And um, so maybe I'll just ask you so for someone who's new and they walk into a Orthodox mm-hmm. church, why are there just carpets? And I know some churches do have pews, so I'm not saying all churches are the same, but for mine in particular, there's um, beautiful rugs and everybody's standing. What is what, um, why do we well, the whole thing with the whole thing with pews is it wasn't something that was, I believe, in the, uh, the Eastern culture. It was something that was brought into it from the West. So there's controversy surrounding that. I not saying, you know, there's a definitive right or wrong answer. Uh, that's not for me to say. I personally don't like pews. I don't like things being nicely organized and, you know, rigid. And uh, it also intimates or gives the uh, idea that you're allowed to sit in church. Um, which for for the most part, like we said, you're not, you shouldn't be. Um, Besides when you have the carpets or maybe a few chairs scattered about here and there, it allows things to be more fluid. People can kind of fill the space in more, um, I guess, more organically, you you can say, instead of like this regimented sense Mm -hmm. through the pews and can't hide behind the, that's another thing too. (laughs) When you have pews, you can hide behind the pews and you can actually be, um, distracted or pulled away from the liturgy, which is horrible. Right. So it encourages that participation. Right. And yes. It's yeah. And it is makes a huge like, difference. The first because it's a two-hour service, so I'm yeah. standing for two hours. So my first experience was like, I don't know if I can do this every Sunday standing yeah. for two hours because my lower back was hurting a little bit, and I had this feeling like I really want this. I really want to be. I really want to be able to do this, but it just seems like a long time. So, but by the second liturgy I attended, it did, it went by so fast. My yeah. Didn't I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like you said, it's, I just felt like I was participating in the worship and I learned in catechism that one of the things about crossing ourselves is that if we find ourselves um, being distracted or, you know, getting faced out and not fully feeling like we're really hundred percent present 
crossing ourselves is like a physical act that we can do to bring ourselves completely back into yeah. the moment. And I really like that too, but um, maybe talk a little bit about um, crossing during the service and why we do it at certain times or when, when do we do it? Do you have, do you have the Jordanville prayer book? It's the, it's the red one. That's very popular. Oh, uh, yeah, the little the little red prayer book. I don't have it. Not, not the little, not the, um, uh, not little red, the Ukrainian one, but the uh, the Rokor one. I think it's like it was yeah. twenty bucks on Amazon. I have it in the other room. I should have brought it. But there's a whole section, um, particularly with the way they do it in Rokor, which is more strict. They actually talk about exactly when to cross yourself, when not to cross yourself, when to do what. It's toward the back, so it gives you guidance uh, for that if you, if if you're interested, but. Yeah, I think the um, the cool thing about the the cross is that it has our whole, the whole. I mean, and this is something you'll you'll notice about the various prayers and different structures of our churches that the whole um, theology is condensed with slightly different nuances in everything that we do. So you know, you have. I'm sure did they explain to you what the cross was all about, right? You have divine and human natures of Christ, right? And He came down incarnate. You have the Trinity in one essence. And then you have, it actually used to be, I think I remember in the old days, they used to cross themselves like this, sort of like that, where they would have the two natures like that and the Trinity like that, which is kind of how the icons are. If you look at the icons, icons, yeah, Yeah, that's because in the old days, that's how they used to do it. So it's a lot harder to do that. So we kind of switched it to this. Mm -hmm. And that's just a fun fact. Like, you know, I got some icons behind you where they're they're doing it. Yeah. And then before I forget, yeah. let's go back to the candle lighting. What is that all about? Oh, sure. Um, well, the idea is that, you know, you hear in um, when God made the promise to Abraham that your descendants will be like uh, the stars, you know, and you see a reference in the epistle of James, uh, the father of lights, you know. So the idea of the, the little lights or the little sparks of uh, divinity is actually a reference to uh, the saints, or what we're all called to be. So it's a, it's a nice gesture that we do where we light our candles. We insinuating that, yes, we are called to be little lights in under the firmament, if you will, not, not, not in the new agey type thing, but uh, what they signify though, what the stars and the celestial bodies signify that we're supposed to, um, as we become, the goal is to become deified or to become saints that we will even judge the angels themselves. So yeah, it does uh, hint at that, like the little spark of divinity that's inside of us and that we're, we're all called to fulfill. That's really cool. And then um, what about lighting a candle? If you had a a sick loved one or maybe someone wasn't able to attend mm-hmm. church, you can light a candle for them. Yeah, that's an, an, another gesture that you can do for the, the, the people that aren't there and almost bringing them into the service in an in, in, indirect way when they can't make it themselves yeah my my godmother when i wasn't able to attend because i was so sick this past month she was so kind to light candles for me and then i have a friend in canada who's probably watching right now very kind friend and he was doing the same for me so it just felt it just felt so nice to know that i could still participate in that way even though i wasn't attending in person, but, um, yeah. So let's see what else. Um, 
Well, I was going to say about that, um, the thing, a common thing that you see in, in the liturgy is that it's really, it, it is the liturgies that actually holds the cosmos together. Because when you actually pay attention to the prayers, particularly in the beginning, when we make the various petitions, uh, we're praying for everything. You can never possibly imagine those sick, those in the air, those in the sea, those in every village and city and country, the faithful who dwell in them. Uh, and so it's this constant gathering, pulling in of the whole universe into ourselves in a way. And then if we came prepared to the service through fasting and repentance and all that, and we've made it uh, efficacious, if you will, from our participation, we offer that we offer the whole universe back up to God, so to speak. And then he, in, in return, sends down his own presence in the, in the form of his body and blood that we all then participate in. And then the interesting thing about the liturgy is that it doesn't end at the liturgy. We're supposed to take that grace and bring it back outside of the walls into the world itself. So yeah. it's this interesting, but what's why when we canceled the liturgies, many of the churches canceled the liturgies in COVID. That was a horrible mistake. I was shocked that I was shocked that like the whole universe didn't collapse or something. <laughs> um, maybe it is. And we haven't seen it yet. I don't know, but we'll see. Well, but, my yeah. That's what, my parish yeah. kept going through that time and yeah, maybe the yeah. ones that kept going held everything together and the, and the, all of our, the monks yeah. and the fathers and the nuns were praying away and keeping everything going. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is really cool. And it's something that becomes more and more intimate. The more that you participate, the more that you actually make a conscience effort to enter more deeply you start to actually fight your passions. You start to acquire the virtues one by one. You cultivate them within your heart. You have genuine repentances or genuine confessions. I've had, I think, two or th I'm shaking my computer. I should stop that. But I had like two or three uh, really genuine confessions. Thank God for that. And coming out of that, just feeling completely renewed and refreshed, I had this burning love for the people around me that I couldn't explain. You know, I looked at the people around me, mainly my family members, because they're the ones closest to you. And even the ones that you don't quite uh, get along with very well, all that just seems to dissipate. And your heart really starts to burn for them. And they feel it. And they feel almost touched by it. So uh, it's why you need to go to confession, folks, and actually make that effort, because you'll be shocked at the change that you'll feel within yourself. But yeah and the and the liturgy is i guess the the thing that galvanizes all of that into like the full uh relationship with god and it'll also teach you gradually when you start to pay attention to it more and more so yeah it's that's so cool so, um, i know what i wanted to ask you about okay. the church itself i've yeah. been taught that well, we know it's like a um, hospital for the soul, mm -hmm. but the, the building itself, I've heard it as um, a, an ark, a boat, where mm -hmm. the church is the boat and the, the front of the church is like the head of the ship. Mm -hmm. So yeah. talk about maybe the, um, why do we have the curtain drawn sometimes in the different doors can you talk about how the temple is set up that way yeah the um there's a lot of different analogies that you can apply to the church and it really does fulfill all the different types that we see in scripture we have 
Garden of Eden. The church is the Garden of Eden. It's where you can say it's where the tree of life uh, is partaken of in the form of Christ himself. Um, ha- have you been to the Holy Thursday service? Not yet. No, I have not. Not yet. It's a beautiful uh, service on the passion of Christ. It's like three hours of straight gospel readings. And um, after he's crucified and given up his spirit to the father, we, the prayer goes, he, he who is suspended uh, upon the tree, uh, he is suspended upon the tree, he who suspended the earth upon the waters. And we pray that multiple times in that somber tone with um, the actual uh, little cutout of, of Christ being carried across the church where everyone is you know, prostrate in that procession of uh, our, our Lord himself. And what's implied there is, you know, he was suspended on the tree. And if you read the epistle of Peter and then a bunch of other places and the church fathers and everywhere, you'll see the cross itself is referenced as a, is depicted as a tree. Even in the book of revelation, a false translation, I believe is uh, the book of life. He was not written in the book of life, but more accurate one. I think the, the, the one that our church uses is he was written on the tree of life, which I think makes the analogy a lot more uh, clear. But you have the idea of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were not allowed to partake from because they were disobedient to God. They were in a, a very simple, twisted state. And had they partaken of the tree of life in that state, they would have remained in that way forever, immortally in that simple, broken state. So uh, God had to pull them out of the out of, out of the garden until they were um, eventually ready to uh, partake of it, which in the course of the history of the church is Christ himself. That's what he offered for us, right? You see in uh, the, uh, the Magnificat where Elizabeth speaks to Mary, she says, blessed is the fruit of your womb, right? And they use all these types of terms. And the idea is that, yeah, Christ is the, the fruit on the tree of life that we all partake of. So he, the church is typical of that. It's where it's where the fruit comes out and we all partake of it. It's also the ark. We uh, take refuge in the church in the drowning chaos of the world and uh, take refuge in that where all of our, all of our passions, which are, you can say, I'm, I'm thinking back to St. Ambrose. He talks about that. Like all of the, all of the passions that we have as human beings are, analogous to the various types of animals out there in the kingdom or out there in the the, the earth itself. Right. So we go into the church with the understanding that, well, all of our, all of our animals within ourselves, all of our passions are brought into the ark and uh, offered up to God in that proper state. So you see the image of Noah there with the animals coming to him in the same way that they came to Adam. The church is a hospital, uh, not just some thing that makes us feel better, but a hospital to our very being, right? In the, in the prayer, in, in, in the Lord's prayer, um, we translate uh, one section of it, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, that's actually not correct. Uh, the Greek says, uh, which means the bread or the super essential or the trans essential or the trans, not transubstantial, super essential bread. And so the idea is that, yeah, this is, this is the bread that heals our very essence, our body, soul, our mind, our heart. Uh, so it's viewed as the hospital in that sense. You also have, you know, you, you brought up the iconostasis and why things were uh, covered. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea there is to go back to the, uh, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant or the temple where 
only a priest would go in there once a year. And the idea is that that is where the presence of God is most intimate and most concentrated. And only a few people are allowed uh, to go in there uh, or even allowed to see exactly how the mystery works or what's happening there. So there's that veil. There, there's, there's, there's that exclusion followed by the, 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 the presentation itself where the priest actually comes out with carrying God himself. So it's uh, the sense of different layers and veils that keeps the mystery reverent, right? You're not just, things are not just all open and informal and given the sense that's not how God wants us to uh, relate to him or worship him. There are certain directions that he gave us in the Old Testament that uh, the Orthodox Church still respects and follows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, I had something. Oh, yeah, I was going to relate it for those of you. Um, you hear in the communion prayer um, the reference to the bridal chamber or the like the the bedroom, right? The most intimate place in the household where very few are able to, to go in. You can view the iconostasis as the wall uh, that represents something like that, right? It's that intimate place where heaven and earth unify and life is dispensed, right? So there's the sacred images there, so... And I've, I've also heard it referred to as a timeless place mm -hmm. too, when we're, when we're worshiping, it's like outside of time. Is that correct? Yeah. Eternity enters time and space. And uh, you actually do feel that when you have a really good worship and you're actually praying hard and you're participating, there's a sense in which everything falls by the wayside. You know, we say, lay aside all earthly cares, and they actually mean it. And when you're graced to have that experience occasionally, it's really, really beautiful. You, you almost don't want it to end. Yeah. <laughs> you, you almost feel, oh, I have to get back to my life out there now and yeah. battle with death again. But that's, that's. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've had moments where I just have felt so grateful that, you know, here I was in the new age, just deceived wool over my eyes for my entire life. And how did I get so blessed that I get to participate in this very, very special experience with these people and my priest and, and um, just tears of gratitude of getting to be part of that. It, it's very humbling, very, very humbling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's nice to know everything has a particular place and you start to look into how that uh, works and that it has wider implications into your everyday life and things that you can draw from that too. Oh, so, yeah. 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 It's a transformative experience. It's not like just, Oh, I go to church on Sunday and then the rest of the week I sin and do all this stuff, but I go to church on Sunday. It's not, you know, it's not like that. It's like, I, get to have this beautiful thing on Sunday that extends into exactly, the week. Yeah. And I keep this awareness of intention of, of what I, why, why do I have these icons in my room? Why do I wear a cross? Why do I read my Bible? You know, it's mm -hmm. just part of my life. It's a lifestyle, you know, it's a transformative yeah. lifestyle. There are different markers throughout your life that um, remind you who you are in various ways. You know, when you have, if you, if you do your multiple prayers throughout the day, usually morning and evening, sometimes uh, I've done the hours at certain points. I would love, I wish I could do those consistently, but there are times when I don't, mm -hmm. 
that is really transformative. If any of you have um, the New Rome Prayer Book or even the kind of the Red Prayer Book from Holy Transfiguration Monastery, the Book of the Hours, I highly recommend it. Uh, I think it's four uh, times throughout the day where you, you can do a little five-minute prayer, uh, like take a break from your life, come back into your own personal temple, remind yourself who you are, and then go back out into your life and do everything that you have to do. And I mean, in moments I know, and I was never in the new age or anything of that sort, but in moments where I was lost or distracted or just completely wild, having those hard set moments that bring you back and root you back into yourself rather quickly are just such a blessing at the time in the day or, and the thing about the, the, the church, and we have all these different prayers, um, uh, services, all these different uh, liturgical uh, services throughout the year, they really mark and qualify uh, time itself. They give you real things to look forward to and real things to be, be, be reminded of and insights into how the world itself works. I mean, this is one of the coolest things is some people get scandalized when, when you talk about these kinds of things. Uh, but Christ created the world, right? So it all testifies to him. Like, he, like, if you think about the time of the year when, for example, the nativity of Christmas happens, it happens at uh, around the equinox when the light is at its uh, least bright point. It's almost as if like darkness is starting to overtake the light. And then this little child is born and then slowly the days start to become longer. You know, light starts to gradually overtake the night. And that culminates into ultimately through his death, burial and his resurrection and ascension. And then in uh, the summer, when Pentecost happens. So the Holy Spirit is given, you know, the fires of tongues at, at around the same time when it's June or July. So the sun is at its peak and everything's all brilliant and exciting and energetic. Yeah. So you, you, you notice that the, the, if you really pay attention to um, each of these services and the times where everything are, they really landscape and they show you, oh yeah, the heavens and all reality does declare the glory of God in very <laughs> intimate ways. And it makes everything it doesn't, I shouldn't say that. It doesn't make everything beautiful. It reveals the beauty that's already there. Mm. I should say it that way. Yeah, and it like that. really attunes you to that. I I had a question for you mm. that I thought of a minute ago about um, the carrying of the Bible, the procession. Mm. Can you talk about that? What um, For someone who goes to liturgy for the first time, and they see everybody well, coming the, out and holding the Bible. What's what's going on with that? The idea is that the um, I had a good example here. I have a Saint Maximus book. I can use this <laughs> a, a little one. But the idea is that um, the priest is the priests are the ones only allowed to carry out the, the gospels, right? And a thing that you should know is only priests are allowed to actually read from the gospel in liturgical services because the gospels pertain to the life teachings and ministry of Christ and the priesthood are Christ's um, representatives here in uh, space and uh, time and space that, are, that go all the way back to the apostles. Right. So only the priests are allowed to read those sacred words and carry that uh, authority forward. And when they carry the gospels in, in front of their faces, it's to signify, well, yeah, well, the idea is that these aren't my words. I'm just a servant. I sinful as they come, but I, it's actually Christ who speaks through me. Uh, the testimony that I'm about to bear through this, right through this text that we see here. So that's what that's all about. And 
also just a general showcasing of the reverence of scripture. We love scripture. I mean, we adorn it in gold. We uh, give it this beautiful tassels and beautiful colors and things like that. So it's something that we love and revere, but more specifically that gesture. Yeah. It's priest is sort of reminding us who's really speaking here. It's not him. And then what's happening when you see people touching gently touching, at least this is what they do in my church. I don't know. Yeah, I do that too. Yeah. But um, touching the priest's robe as he travels through the church. What's going on? You, you see, actually, you see that referenced in the gospels with uh, Christ himself, the lady who took a, a hold of his garment, just grabbed it. And Christ said, I sense power coming forth from me. Right. Uh, you see that in um, uh, the apostles themselves. Uh, there were people, whenever the apostles were walking by, there were people who would come by and just touch the hem of the garments and they would be miraculously healed of, of many uh, ailments and things of that sort. And their prayers would get answered. So that's, it all goes back to that. And of course the priests, like I said, there are the continuation of that lineage that goes back to Christ himself mm-hmm. through the apostles. So it's rooting into that reality that you see in scripture, but not just in stories. They're actually something that we participate in. Yeah. I really want to go back to the apostolic succession that you touched on because somebody maybe let's say a protestant person comes to divine liturgy for the first time and they see somebody kissing the hand of the priest and the priest is giving the person a blessing and maybe the protestant person would think like what is what is that that's that's not biblical what's happening there so what would you say to somebody who was questioning well i would say what saint basil (laughs) what saint basil said uh to those who seek to only bring everything back to the scriptures. St. Basil in one of his letters says, well, where in the Bible does it say you have to cross yourself through the sign of the cross? Where in the Bible does it say you have to do this? Where in the Bible does it say you have to do that, right? So I would just sort of uh, say that to them. And um, I would say to them, well, we're not, and this ties into this whole idea with the, uh, the icons as well. Like these people are mere they're participating and they're mere conduits for the grace of God to shine forth, right? God is not, he came, he incarnated into time and space. He had a physical body. He was, he roamed the particular places that you can go and see right now. And the church has left for us all these physical markers for his grace to um, be imparted to us because we we're weak. We can't see the grace of God as perfectly as we should. We're not saints. So we don't have that, uh, intimacy with God that we should. So he has left for us these various markers. Uh, the scriptures are one of them. They're not the only one. Uh, they're the core of the experiences of God, but they're not the only way that God comes down to us and relates to us. The main way is actually through uh, the church services and the liturgical year. And yeah, that's, that's that. I mean, there was the idea of the laying on of hands where Christ where everyone was to, or the apostles were to ordain successors to them because they knew they wouldn't be here forever. And these priests carry that, that grace that went all the way back. I mean, I just, my, my cousin was ordained uh, about a month or two ago and I got to see that actual laying on of hands. And it was really beautiful because you got to, you got to see Christ's lineage carried on to someone I knew. Oh my so gosh, that's, that is so and now, wow. yeah, now I, I make sure to kiss his hand, even though I'm used to hugging him but I'm going to make it a habit to just 
kiss his hand more frequently because he does convey that grace, even if he were to somehow fall into a great sin. Yeah, I've just I've heard a lot of Western Christians having trouble with this idea because they don't think there should have to be another person. They think of it as you're you're worshiping a person as an intermediary between you and God. And I don't see it that way, but yeah. Yeah. When, when, when Christ says, um, when you hear in scripture, you know, there's only one mediator between earth and heaven you know, in Christ. And you hear that he's not talking about that doesn't apply to the reverence that is due to reality itself, because in, in some sense, all of reality, various people are mediators in a way that testify to God in some way. Christ was simply talking about his own role, his own personal property in the Trinity, right? The Father, everything goes back to the Father. The Son is eternally, uniquely begotten from the Father, only begotten. The Spirit proceeds from the Father, right? Christ's being begotten is what mediates all of reality to God. That's all that he's saying. He's not, that doesn't carry across to angels, for example, who do God's bidding. They uphold uh, the cosmos in ways that, you know, we'd like to think about different mathematical or physical laws and these types of things. But we would say as Orthodox, it's the angelic coasts who uphold reality in that way. So in that sense, they're also uh, mediators. But the interesting thing about, about that is that God wants us to become as much like him as possible. He wants us to participate in his life. It's not something that you're simply like a transaction that's given to you and, and you're free from all penance and forms of suffering, right? So we see in the priest, uh, Christ himself working to deify all of reality. And we see that we see that in a whole sort of other places in our icons, in each other, we see a little bit of God in each of us, which is why we are called to love everyone. It's not just a sentimental thing. It's a command for our very being. So I'm not sure if that answers that objection or that question, but no. yeah, it, it, it all goes back to just having a whole, a, a different worldview or conception of a lot of these terms and a lot of these ideas. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, we didn't really talk about the hymns and I, I really love mm-hmm. how the Psalms are interwoven into the service and um Anything about the the act of singing, of offering our voices that you wanted to share about? Well, it's a synergy. I mean, if you think about singing, it mainly has to do with your breathing and movements of your whole body, right? When especially if you get into a song, one that you should be or one that you shouldn't be, your your entire being participates in it and is changed in some way because uh, your breath or your spirit is now singing these sacred hymns that came about from various saints and prophets across the ages. And so there's great grace and benefit in the same way that the icons convey the presence and uh, grace of God and the, the presence of the, uh, the saints themselves. So it's a beautiful way for us to be attuned, our very spirits to be attuned to the spirit of these people who had this connection with the Holy Spirit. And it's, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. All right. So when you go to liturgy, is everything in Greek, all the, all the hymns? Um, 
the one my home church it's all in greek but my uh the one i go to and now is all in english i go to a russian church yeah mine is all in english but i've listened i like to go on youtube and watch different liturgical services on there and i really love the aramaic chants too yeah those are good to those they're just so beautiful and um and then um you had mentioned the angels and we we have a cherubim hymn or is that how you say it the cherubim hymn yeah yeah so that's really beautiful too that that's their little part of the of the um experience that we yeah the the cherubic hymn is interesting it actually it's a it's another reminder of what we're called to be you know we um translated i'm not sure how they translated in your church we mystically represent the cherubim is that what they say mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's not again that's not what it says in the greek it's one of those mistranslations that i think is they're not all i'm not a grecophile like everything has to be in greek or anything of that sort but there are some places that i get really mad when i hear it in english because it's like you're missing it you're not getting it but it actually says uh which is like a verb form of icon we image the trinity or excuse me we image the cherubim we iconize the cherubim so it's saying like our whole very being is becoming imaged the way the cherubim are who will carry the throne of god himself so it's actually it's the it's the lifting up of us as we're no we're no longer mere humans at this point we're we're iconizing we're imaging these angels who are at his throne room and at his behest right so it's not like oh we mystically represent them it's like okay that's not wrong but it's not as to the point as it is in the original so yeah i I, the friend i mentioned earlier who lives in canada he Mm. is such a great resource because like you're saying like there's these times where the greek the actual greek meaning is so powerful so much better yeah so deep and so just you you just learn a whole nother level when you understand the greek so you're so lucky that you know greek yeah <laughs> so it's you, speak, yeah. you can just have a, a conversation fluently with a greek person. um i can have an okay conversation now i'd be a little rusty um i need about two weeks to a month to get into it again like if i was if i were just thrown into greece i might be a little awkward for a couple of days i'm trying to gather back all these uh, words deep in the cobwebs of my head that i know i know what these words mean but i haven't recalled them in a while well, yeah, if I, catechism teacher mm-hmm. as well. A lot of times in class, we learn um, the Greek term too. Yeah, I love. I just I love catechism. I love going and I just yeah. leave there just feeling like, oh my gosh, I just learned so much. It's every every day, I I'm just getting deeper and deeper into this world of orthodoxy and. I mean, that's why I started this channel. I just hope that I can plant some seeds and inspire people to at least attend liturgy and then take it from there. Yeah, I mean, you guys, you just have to go. There's There comes a point where words really do not, they don't suffice to express what we're, what we're experiencing. And you need to stop 
uh, you need to have a little bit of faith and just at least go in there and see what it's all about. Mm-hmm. You know, and you'll know when the time is right. And I pray that you go to uh, a church that's not super ethnically oriented, but even so, there is grace there, whether the people feel it or not. Yeah, just go, just go, just go, <laughs> just go. Oh, um, to end, let's talk about your channel. Oh, okay. Um, my, um, I'm not producing my own content on there. I'm just taking, there's a lot of lesser known resources for a lot of Orthodox. Pantokrata.gr um, is a Greek site. Some recordings of Father Seraphim Rose that are obscure um, parts of the, the interwebs. So r- right now my channel, it just serves as a place to compile all these resources and in a nice format for people to reference. So yeah, that's how it is now. I may produce content in the future. I'm not so sure yet. I'm still learning. So I want to continue to learn. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'll put, I'll put the link to your channel in the description and any final words or um, is there, I know we're, we're talking about experiencing the liturgy and not just reading about it, but um, for someone who's just brand new to orthodoxy, is there a book that you could recommend? Um, um, any kind of there is one. I should have had it with me, but well, there's two. I'll, I'll recommend you two. The I would say the Ethics of Beauty is a really good book to have, and the the Life of the Virgin Mary. Um, yeah, the Life of the Virgin Mary, the fifth book. So I'll give you. I'll, I'll provide links for those two. Okay. Um, the Ethics of Beauty is a really fat book, but it reads very easily. It reads like in a beautiful dialogue format so don't be intimidated by that the font is nice and big and it helps bring you into this um, ancient uh, eastern mindset that the church was birthed from and a big part of talking to protestants or people from the the west for example even well even if you're not from that you're still influenced by that worldview um, in america we're a protestant country so these books will really help you uh, come out of that and have a more you can say a properly feminine view of things, not one that's, you know, sentimental or that type of thing, but um, that rich type of feminine that allows God himself to be birthed in you, which the mother of God exhibited perfectly. And yeah, the book on the the life of the Virgin Mary, I think, especially if you're from Protestant background, you don't understand how crucial she is to our theology, to our spirituality, to our uh, experience. I had I, I, I had a, uh, I think it was a Baptist friend who was, in, who was looking into orthodoxy and he came up to me and was like, Pano, I confess, uh, I pray to the mother of God more than I pray to Christ. And I'm like, oh, why is that? He's like, because whenever I pray to her, I feel that she answers my prayers immediately. You know, she's like a mother who immediately comes to, to your aid to you know, kiss your wound or whatever to console you. And I'm like, yeah, that's why we pray to her. She's very important. Yeah. <laughs> but it was funny. He. He had to confess that. Yeah. He had to confess that. The story of her life and what she went through as the mother of Christ is, like Mm -hmm. you said, so important to our theology. And yeah, Yeah, and you'll you'll learn things about her that you didn't even know at all. And I would throw in the the lives of the apostles too, um, the lives of the holy apostles book. So those three books I think are good because what they'll do is they'll help bring you out of um, the rigid intellectualism that a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. 
whether they know it or not. And also the other two books, you'll be given a lot of backstory from our tradition that really fleshes out everything in scripture, uh, in the New Testament in particular, that just unlocks this whole layer of depth that you didn't even, most people don't even realize was there. So on top of going to liturgy, because that's how the early Christians worship, um, those books I'll recommend. They're very good. Awesome. All right. Well, Pano, thank you so much. I learned so much from you today. Oh, and, thank you. Um, God bless you and your family, everything in your life. And um, just thank you for spending this time with me. Thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. And to all of my subscribers, again, thank you so much for your comments and your support. If there are any people new to orthodoxy, interested in orthodoxy, um, I always appreciate when you can share my videos or um, send them to my Instagram. My DMs are open for anyone, especially people that are questioning the new age and beliefs that they've had for a long time that they're starting to think that there could be something else out there. Um, I've shared a little bit of my testimony or my conversion story. I haven't gone into it super deeply yet, but that is something that I'm, I'm planning to do. And I hope it will um, inspire my viewers to message me with any questions or even like today I, I had somebody just, just vent all of her frustrations and she just needed somebody to listen. And I was that person and it was very humbling and I felt very honored. So I just want to extend that to anyone watching right now. Um, just find me on Instagram, a devotional heart, and there's a period between each word. So thanks guys for watching and I'll see you next time. God bless you. Bye.